you're paying close attention to the news at the beginning of this fall, you may have heard the name Greta Thunberg. Greta is a 16-year-old environmental activist from Sweden who made a splash in September when she sailed across the Atlantic in a zero-carbon emission yacht and uh, arrived in New York at the United Nations and spoke at a UN summit about climate change. At the UN, at the UN she was asked what her message is to world leaders regarding climate change. And she spoke so forcefully and so passionately that the video went viral. And she's been receiving invitations since then to speak around the world. And she was here in Canada last month. One major touch point of Greta's and in the climate change conversation in general is the focus on 1.5 degrees. Research shows that an increase in the global average temperature by 1.5 degrees would be a catastrophic tipping point for climate change. I was reading this week that scientists project we'll see some of the climate impacts we already see today, droughts in some areas, flooding in others, wildfires, more intense and frequent hurricanes, sea levels rising, begin to go from bad to outright terrifying at that point. It's the stage where we'll likely see ecosystems begin to cross points of no return. Take a look at this. Through our collective CO2 emissions, which at the moment have been 2 trillion, 330 billion, 190 million, and counting rapidly tons, we have increased the global temperature largely in the last 100 years by 1.08 degrees and counting. This leaves us with a countdown of 15 years and 20 days until we reach 1.5 degrees. Now, at Southridge, we recently switched largely to reusable coffee cups, so, you know, we're good. But as Greta Thunberg emphatically conveys, there's a train barreling down the tracks on us. It's overwhelming, and it can feel like it's too big to do anything about. And this isn't the only crisis that feels this way at the moment. There are some overwhelming conversations going on right here in Niagara that feel beyond the scope of our ability to have an impact. One of those conversations can be highlighted by three recent newspaper articles right here in Southern Ontario. Last month, the Toronto Star featured a cover story expose that examines the way that we as Canadians, as Southern Ontarians, have for decades allowed a system to remain structured in such a way that it creates room for the perpetuation of abuses against migrant workers. Now, here in Niagara, we're fortunate enough to have some incredible farmers in our community who are compassionate and caring employers to the migrant workers. Our friends from Cherry Lane down the road and Quarry Ridge up the road embody exactly what you'd hope for in relationship with people who come to Canada to work with them. But not all migrant workers who enter our community are fortunate enough to experience this kind of support and instead are living at times in abusive situations and are feeling the injustice inherent to our system. There's a structure in place that, even for Canadian employers with good intentions towards the workers, creates an imbalanced power structure. Knowing that their employer has complete control over sending them home at any moment or not inviting them back next season, workers feel forced to accept poor living or work conditions and to hide injuries or medical conditions from their employers. For one of our Caribbean friends this season, despite having a good relationship with his Canadian employer, who by all accounts is a fair person, he was worried to let his employer know that he was pursuing some medical testing throughout the summer for some health concerns. 
Despite his fears, he was persistent enough to manage to secretively piece together enough of his appointments at the clinic and hospital to find out that he has cancer. Even at that point, he was concerned that his employer would find out and not allow him to come back to Canada next spring, so he debated the merits of actually going for treatment versus being exposed for having cancer, for which he might, he feared, be punished by losing his job. You know, shortly after the migrant worker program started in Canada, Toronto went on an epic sports championship run. No, not that one. That's the one. Yes, still living off the buzz of the 1967 Stanley Cup run for the Leafs. This is a program that started in 1966, over 50 years ago, AKA a Toronto Maple Leafs drought amount of time. As one Canadian human rights lawyer states in the article, the stories that we've been hearing literally for decades occur again and again and again, yet there has been no movement to make alterations to the structure of the program. The Star article details elements of health risks, extreme isolation and inability to get transportation that workers need for medical help and even picking up basic necessities. And sometimes they can essentially be trapped on their farms. And workers still only have, after all of these years, only temporary status in Canada. Their social insurance numbers, which help them to pay taxes in Canada, which they do, expire as soon as the work in the fall is done. And so they have to get out of the country. And so they have no voice in the conversation to help bring about change. This group coming into our community lives not with the confidence in the Canadian government, but under the power of private Canadian citizens. Some spend decades in brutal living conditions, tin-roofed homes, uh, rooms with no air conditioning, rat-infested trailers, overcrowded rooms that are divided by bedsheets and cardboard. And some risk personal injury or even death over the fear of losing the chance to work to release their family from poverty. The world has changed since the start of this program in 1966, which has done so much good for us and for many workers. But the system, which creates space for real abuses that have no place in the world today or in our own neighborhood, continues without signs of changing. Similarly, a number of weeks ago, the St. Catherine Standard featured a headlining cover story entitled, Downtown Businesses Frustrated with Ongoing Addiction and Homelessness Issues. In the article, local business owners uh, in St. Catharines express feelings of being overwhelmed and fearful and helpless with the apparent state, uh, the apparent rise of visible homelessness in the area. One business owner states in the article, I used to feed the people that came into my store that now frighten my employees. I don't feel safe. Now my staff are afraid, my customers are afraid. In the article, a representative from the region confirms that the situation in Niagara has changed significantly over the past two years. As they say, when the vacancy rates dropped and the price of rentals went through the roof, it happened dramatically for Niagara in a way that Niagara had not experienced. We as a Southridge community entered this conversation 15 years ago because there was a crisis with our homeless population homeless community at the time. And from what we're seeing now, the needs are now worse 
than when we first felt compelled to join in. As the people in this article are suggesting, the difference in our community has been observable. There are more people than ever living outside under tarps and boxes and tents and the usual spots in Centennial and Montebello Park, in the forests and under bridges. And the challenges that are intertwined into this growing community are growing as well. An opioid crisis began to emerge at the same time as the housing crisis a few years ago. And it started what they called in the region the perfect storm. Use of opioids has been on the rise and about six years ago, a dangerous new synthetic opioid called fentanyl hit the illegal drug markets. Fentanyl is super cheap to produce and it's 10 to 20 times more powerful than heroin, 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Not only are people turning to fentanyl itself, but fentanyl is now being found secretly laced in all kinds of other drugs. Because of this, the number of opioid-related deaths in Canada increased in 2017 by a third. And proportionately, the largest number of reported opioid-related overdoses in Canada were in St. Catharines. Our neighbors in the Indigenous community are being hit hard by all of this. Only 3% of the population of Niagara have Indigenous background. But 25% of the current community of people experiencing homelessness in Niagara are Indigenous. So that means out of the people that originally inhabited this land, Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory, they make up only a fraction of the current inhabitants. But instead they now represent one in four people who are experiencing homelessness. Now in the midst of this, with the vulnerable population uh, increasing in number on our streets, it's being reported that the Niagara region has become a hub for human trafficking, with 75% of human trafficking in Canada passing through this region. As you can imagine, people are desperate to get off the streets, and we're fortunate enough to have a shelter right in our St. Catharines building that increased in capacity by over 30% last year. But we've been finding that at the Southridge shelter that even for those who decide that they want to get off the streets and they make an effort to get into a shelter, we're turning away dozens if not hundreds of people per month. Now the agreed upon most effective strategies for ending the cycle of homelessness have to do with first getting people into long-term housing and then being able to more effectively deal with the surrounding issues such as addiction or mental health or trauma. But what happens when housing itself is a huge issue? A recent article, Closer to Home for a Welland Community, speaks to the fallout as well. An Erie Media article entitled, Affordable Housing in Niagara, Situation Critical, names something that we here in Niagara already know, that just being able to live here is becoming a luxury. Rent levels are rising, people are being pushed well beyond their financial limits, and many people are feeling a sense of desperation. Niagara Regional Housing reports that around this time last year, there were close to 12,000 people on waiting lists for affordable housing. Thousands of those people are children in families who are waiting, and the waiting itself is actually a challenge. In Welland, for a bachelor apartment, the waiting list is six years, which is still a lot better than if you need a one-bedroom apartment for you or your family, where you'll be waiting 13 years to get to the front of the line. And the thing is, to maintain your place in that line, you'll have to keep completing annual reviews, which isn't easy 
if you're transient in between housing, you'll get sent an annual letter, which is kind of crazy. How effective is it going to be to send a letter to someone who has no fixed address, which will be followed up by a call, which is similarly challenging in a population which often uh, have phones get stolen and, and replaced. And then you'll get bumped from the list if you don't respond. We've had people we've been connected to as a community who have managed to uh, get years into the waiting list process before falling off the grid for a period, re-emerging, and finding that they have to start again. If they do manage to get into a place and are being supported by Ontario Works, they'll be receiving $733 a month, which is great, and I'm legitimately proud to be a part of a country that has the value to show this kind of support. However, in Niagara, they'll then be paying an average of $920 a month. Uh, and this is just for a one-bedroom apartment. And that leaves a shortfall of $187 a month. Negative $187 is not a lot to live on. Even the cost of rooming houses has gone up 60% in the last few years. And often the only other option is to rent an apartment with someone in a similar situation. Uh, maybe someone you met at, the sh uh, at a shelter or on the street. But if they end up struggling or relapsing, not just, or even just not being consistent with their rent, you'll lose your place and be back to square one, which is just more common than not. Like, can we all agree that none of this makes sense? So the struggle is real right here in our neighborhoods. But is that all there is to say about it? Of course not. All of these articles, all of these crises are connected in their profound and fundamental and ancient way. In his first century letter to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits, breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Even in Paul's context in the first century, he recognizes that there's a present suffering, that everything was not as it should be. And with the countdown, as with the countdown clock that we just saw, there was a sense that they were moving towards something, that there's an imminence to all of this. But according to what we read here, the imminence that Paul saw was not a countdown to doomsday that they should be fearfully anticipating. Paul had a very different countdown in mind when he wrote, the whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. And this revelation, this thing that seems hidden, but will be made visible, is going to bring on a beauty that will counteract what now seems rotten and impossible and not as it should be. Paul writes further down that creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. This is where things are heading, towards an end that creation, that our community is desperately waiting for. It's holding its breath in anticipation. This was true in Paul's time and place, and this is true now. Our community is waiting for people who are submitted to God, sons and daughters of God, to be revealed in the midst of the current suffering, to be visible where the suffering is happening. The question is, are we willing to be present in the pain? Right here, right now, so that we can be present 
in the birth of something new. Because Paul tells us that this is how this works. And I mean, in this season, I would suggest that the theme of incarnation into a suffering world sounds like something that may be relevant to the advent of Jesus. If present suffering becomes future beauty, it's because God's children have showed up and are actually acting like his children. Today, the question of whether we're willing to put ourselves in that position is inescapable. And I think this is true for us here today for three reasons. One, it's inescapable because we're already in this conversation. As a Southridge community, we don't shy away from this. Over 15 years ago, we as a church were faced with a difficult question. If you've been around for a while, you've heard this on numerous occasions. And if you're new, you're going to hear it on numerous occasions for sure. The question was essentially, if we as a church ceased to exist today, would our community feel the loss? At the time, we felt that the answer was no. It wouldn't make any difference to anyone outside of these seats. Since then, in our conviction to try to live like we're actually following Jesus, our church community at Southridge um, has realized it's up to us to align ourselves with people on the margins of our community. The early church understood this. In the description of the shape of their community in Luke's writings in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, the early church was present in the needs of their neighborhoods. They understood that creation is waiting with breathless anticipation, not for some miracle that hopefully God has planned, not waiting for the government to intervene and like, really it's their job and they'd really be best equipped. They didn't assume it was anyone else's responsibility to take care of overlooked people. They assumed it was their responsibility as the church. That's our assumption as a Southridge community too. And why we work hard to try to be the absolute best that we can be, to be equipped, to lead the way, and to be present in caring for the needs of our community, the people in our community. This is actually a fairly difficult place to be because now that we're in this, strug this struggle, as you'd expect, it's a lot more personal. If we think that the stories we hear in the newspaper are challenging, that a reporter has spent a few days asking people about what they're feeling, we collectively can't even imagine what we've collectively been through over the past year across our three locations, let alone over the past 15 years. On a weekly basis, our friends outside the church in Welland wait patiently with their children in the freezing cold for doors to open for what will be their first and only meal of the day. And children wait on the streets hours before the start of Rose City Kids Saturday program because it's the most joyful and safest they'll feel all week. People come in off the streets in St. Catharines in search of shelter. They become our friends and have success and transformation and fall and end up in the same place again and again. Friends from the Caribbean who have been living in our community will lose a grandchild, a spouse, or a child back home. And they can be found working in an orchard in Vineland on the day of the funeral, 3,000 kilometers away, because they need to hold the course so that they can break their families free of poverty. And even the death of the person they love the most can't distract them from that goal. 
Consistently, there are small, quiet funerals after a tragic death that our community in St. Catherine's holds in our lobby. Just a few people, not really knowing what to say, feeling the tragedy that they were the closest people left at the life of this person and realizing that they probably weren't even close enough. Like this level of personalization means that we can't escape this conversation. We can't escape the decision every single day of, will I do something about this or not? Like Greta Thunberg in the climate change conversation, we realize that as insurmountable as the barriers may seem, they're only insurmountable if we stand back and do nothing. So we, as a church community, refuse to do nothing. The second reason that we can't escape the question of whether we'll stand up and be revealed as the sons and daughters of God in the suffering of our community is this. If we choose to ignore the crisis, we're not opting out of the decision. We're making a decision to ignore it. Our friends in the indigenous community here in Niagara speak strongly about this. As they name the broken history that we largely ignore, they suggest that by not learning about what really happened here in Niagara and across Canada and continues to happen to our indigenous community today, and by not doing anything, we're not remaining neutral. We're excusing ourselves from the question. As they tell us, our silence is actually complicity. Our silence aligns ourselves with the wrongdoing that we're not speaking out against or acting out against. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something similar in Germany during the Second World War. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Either way, we're making a decision. The third reason that this question is inescapable for us today is that each of our stories is intertwined with our neighbors who are in crisis. We went through an exercise earlier to, in a small way, name the fact that we're more privileged than we realize. But the thing with the parts of ourselves that we don't realize is that we don't realize them. A part of privilege that becomes tricky is the fact that it sets us up in a whole comfortable structure of backups and safety nets, which blinds us to our unhealthy cycles of ignorance of reality. And the ways that our ignorance harms others, our community, ourselves, and our own future generations. But when we step in to help break the cycles of poverty or injustice, these cycles also help us to break our cycle of privilege and move to a place of mutuality. We're supposed to be transformed by the journeys of the people in the margins of our society because they have something that we don't. They're experiencing truth about the world that we haven't experienced. We're, if we're there to be a part of the process, then we're there to be able to liberate each other. In those moments that we step in to help break the cycles of poverty and injustice alongside people who are experiencing it personally, as our cycles of privilege bump into their cycles of poverty and injustice, the two cycles begin to break each other apart. And in those moments, we find that not only are we revealed as a child of God, but often the friends who are deeply enmeshed in the crisis will be revealed to us as sons and daughters of God as well. Now, we just came out of a series called Watering Down Grace, which Mike and Jeff took us through a deep dive into the fact that God's grace 
really is free and unmerited. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. And to suggest that there are actions that we need to take to earn God's grace is a straight up lie. And I want to be clear that as we interpret Paul's words in Romans as a call to action, that that's dangerously close to sounding like these are things we need to do in order to earn God's grace as his children. What I'm actually saying is this. When we put ourselves in relationship with people who are in crisis right here in our community, when we get to know that person and become changed by that relationship, we realize that this is not a precursor to grace, but a part of the unfolding and, un- and outpouring of grace that we get to receive. In all three of these ways, we can't avoid the decision that faces us right here, right now. We need to do something rather than nothing, which is actually possible. felt like some of the messages that were coming through from Southridge and hearing our, our pastors and our leadership kind of talk about the uh, a life of action was really starting to stir something. I mean, God was definitely starting something in my heart that wasn't really had been a part of my life. We just felt this prompting to really engage more. And that's what drove me to take that first step and like, okay, let's get out of the seat in the aisle here and let, uh, let, me, let me try something that's going to be really different for me. Uh, the first time I went into the shelter, I definitely expected to have the, um, the older gentleman in the alleyway with the, the grizzled beard and the, the winter hat, that kind of experience. And then going into the shelter the first time for my first shift behind the front desk, it wasn't that at all. There were younger people, there were older people, there were people who um, fit every walk of life they were just missing housing for whatever reason. So that that absolutely changed right then, um, just seeing that in front of me. I grew up in Leamington, Ontario. It's a small farming community with a lot of greenhouses, and there's a pretty large migrant worker population that works in Leamington. I remember as a kid um, going to the grocery store on Friday night and seeing tons of bikes outside the grocery store um, because it was the day that the migrant workers did all of their grocery shopping. I remember thinking, why are they biking? It would be so much more convenient for them to take a car or get a taxi. And I remember feeling a little bit intimidated to walk through the doors with a whole ton of workers standing outside. So based on my background growing up, I had very little experience with the migrant worker population, the purpose, what they gave to our economy, and what it was actually like to live in their shoes. I still don't understand that, but I have a lot of friends that live in that world all the time. And as I've gotten to know them, it's completely changed my perspective. Coming to church uh, at Southridge, Looking around at the people that were coming, you would think that they're, you know, middle class or maybe a little bit beyond, and not uh, a community that really had a lot of needs for the people that are low income and so on. And now I see that there's a big need for that, um, just for even housing, and especially for even people in the uh, with some um, 
mental health issues, the housing issues, even tonight talking around the table, it was a big deal. They can't find places for themselves to live. I was not aware of that, and yeah, I didn't expect that whatsoever. So early on in volunteering, um, I had someone that I recognized from my own high school. Um, not someone I was super connected with, but I recognized him, and it had obviously been a number of years since I would have seen that person. I remember sitting at the desk while the staff person talked to them for their intake, and just being in almost shock of, hey, this was a person who was really like part of the cool crowd at school, and from what I recalled was well off, and was afforded things in life, but here they were coming for an intake in the shelter and I could tell that they had some likely experience with the street just from the way they were presenting and just being absolutely like heartbroken of like, wow, it, this can really, it can really affect anybody. It was really interesting to have that person there and then to even think like, where did our life in the 15 or 20 years, we'll say since high school, what path did they go down that mine didn't go down that would reconverge us in the same spot at this time? You absolutely never know what someone's going through. I never knew, I, I still don't know what they went through that brought them to that point, and I don't know what they're going through now, none of which really matters, right? I just want to be able to be a hand up at that moment. That's where I wanted to be. I think one of the times when it hit home for me how different things are for my Caribbean friends was when one of my friends lost his wife back home. She passed away while he was here. And then not a short time later, that same season, his son was in a very serious car accident and was hospitalized. And through that whole period, he couldn't go home. He couldn't go home to be with his family. He couldn't go home to grieve and bury his wife. And he couldn't go home to support his son in the hospital because he needed to stay here and earn money to support his family back home. That's not my reality. I would be there in a heartbeat and wouldn't have to worry about anything else. And for him, this was where he had to be. You can hear a lot of numbers about what, you know, homelessness is and, and or low-income families. Until you actually sit around a table and talk to people, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And sitting around the table and having that conversation and finding out what they struggle with on a daily basis and that uh, to them little things like just finding enough money to buy the basics is really a struggle for them and I would not have realized that that was a big thing here within our community. When our first child, Malachi, was born a few years ago, my wife Taryn went through two straight days of intense labor. The midwives who we were with were amazing, being present throughout, helping her along, knowing just what to say and what to do. And I was present as well, but completely useless. Taryn told me later that the regular stream of, you can do it, babe, you've got this, was incredibly obnoxious and not helpful. But literally minutes after the most surreal struggle and pain of Taryn's life, she held Malachi and she said, I would absolutely go through that again. In the follow-up to Paul's encouragement that the sons and daughters of God will be revealed, he writes, we know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. We're encouraged to be a part of that, to be the midwives, if not the obnoxious husband, who are present by choice through this painful, overwhelming way too long, will this ever end process? 
Because this struggle in our, in our community is not a senseless pain, it's leading somewhere if we're willing to be in it. To be midwives who are present in the pain and because of that are present in the beauty that follows. As a church community, we've chosen to be here for the labor pains. We're present and active with our homeless community in St. Catharines, with our low-income uh, community in Welland, and with our migrant worker community in Vineland. With people we now call friends, with whom we share a pain and a struggle that's real. Asking ourselves the question now, if we as a church community cease to exist today, would our community feel the loss? In humility and thanks to God, I believe with confidence that the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Instead of feeling overwhelmed, like all of this is counting down to zero and beyond our control, we get to experience a struggle that we know is leading to beauty and to joy. That's worth celebrating. Our community is worth celebrating. But today, I think there's another inescapable question for us. Today, I'd like to ask us, I'd like to ask you this. If you cease to exist in this community today, would anyone who's struggling, would anyone who's different from you and could use your friendship, would anyone feel the loss? If the answer is yes, then you should know that we're going to keep discussing throughout this series about how God may be calling you deeper into different unique ways to be a midwife through the struggle. And if the answer is no, that no one, including yourself, would feel that loss, then it's time to step forward. It's time to bring your privilege and blessings to the table. And it's time to be a part of the labor, face to face, as our community groans and waits in breathless anticipation for the birth of the freedom that's to come. And in doing so, together, we're going to find out the answer to the question, what's the best that could happen? Let's pray. God, please help us not to simply appreciate that others are present in the suffering of our community but rather to be present ourselves, to be revealed as sons and daughters of God, and to grow in the mutuality of relationship with our friends who are struggling not only to help change their circumstances, but to be open to having ours changed as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.